to Art Fictions with me, Gillian Knipe, bringing you stories of art and the art of stories. Today's guest is the very talented Grant Foster, whose art practice is centred around figurative painting. Grant draws on the long tradition of depicting children in art to create a lens through which a young person might experience the world today. His figures are often unstable and captured in movement. They entice us with their storybook simplicity, and once drawn in, we find an air of ambiguity and often something menacing. The child who knows too much, a not-so-innocent, a topsy-turvy world. Beware the makings of a future adult. For me, his paintings are always happening on the surface, be it chalky whitewashing or collaging together chopped-up pieces of canvas. He seems to be showing us an image while pointing to something else, and I'd suggest that something else is for us to think about. Today, Grant has chosen the Atrocity Exhibition by J.G. Ballard. It was published in 1970, although prior to this, excerpts had been published as standalone pieces, including in Ambit magazine, which is still alive and thriving today. I'd give you a quick synopsis, but that wouldn't go near the complexity and depth of this book. It is referred to and disputed as being an experimental novel, but is it a novel? Split into titled sections, each of various lengths, they are all presented in one book as if to be a coherent story. And if there is a story, it is that of a doctor in a mental asylum who succumbs to a breakdown and wanders around in his own psychosis. Stepping back, the narrative continually circles around the death of President John F. Kennedy. It's an event which fascinated and horrified America in equal proportions, an event which, alongside the murders of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and the alleged suicide of Marilyn Monroe, has been the subject of many documentaries and creative interpretations, most recently Bob Dylan's Murder Most Foul. In an introduction to the book, William Burroughs draws an analogy between the Atrocity Exhibition and the work of Robert Rauschenberg, being about magnification of the image to the point of unrecognisable. In fact, throughout the book's notes, added in 1990, Ballard often refers to particular artists and paintings. A bit of gossip here. One of the sections of the book, which was published in Ambit in 1967, was titled Plan for the Assassination of Jacqueline Kennedy. Randolph Churchill, son of Winston, who was an MP and friend of the Kennedys, denounced it as an outrageous slur on the memory of the dead president and demanded that the Arts Council withdraw their funding, which, by the way, they didn't, but they did refuse Ambert's funding for a competition for the best fictional poetry written under the influence of drugs. Reading the atrocity exhibition, it becomes hard to orient yourself in this world littered with war detritus and punctured continually by death and violence. For instance, when I read the part about Cleopatra being shot in the Hilton Hotel, I thought it was referring to the Cleopatra being shot in some strange about turn in time. Instead, it was, of course, the more ordinary reference to the filming of Elizabeth Taylor in the movie Cleopatra. Though oddly, I do think my own unintentional time warp seemed to suit the narrative. 
This is not so much a book to read as a worthwhile but difficult journey to endure, and it definitely complements Grant Foster's work as an attempt to mark the signposts which define a generation. Grant Foster, welcome so much to Art Fictions. Great, thank you. Thanks for having me. So I'd like to start by asking you, why did you choose this book? Oh, for goodness sake, why did you choose this book? (laughs) (laughs) I take it you haven't enjoyed reading it then? It's not that that I haven't enjoyed reading it. It's more that there's a point at which J.G. Ballard talks about being trapped. And I felt trapped in that book. It's, It's not so much about enjoying it or not enjoying it, but it was a difficult journey. Yeah, absolutely. One of the main reasons why I wanted to talk about this book on this podcast is because I am becoming convinced, if you like, that perception or reality is really only a collection of fragmentary inputs, if you like. And this is what Ballard does in this book specifically, He goes about convincing us that, in a sense, what lies beneath these fragmentary sensations, which are made from the mass media landscape, are a set of incredibly primal motivations. As you may or may not know, is that he grew up in a a prison of war camp in Shanghai. And he described that experience as being, well, famously described that experience as having an effect on him, where he realised that reality was a stage set that could be deconstructed at any moment. And I think that this is true. This is especially true now, of course. Why is it especially true now? Well, I just mean in terms of what's been going on recently in the last couple of months. You know, it was only two months ago that people were stripping the supermarkets in in utter terror. And this is what I mean. This reality is hanging by a thread and it always has done and it always will do. And there's something, if you're incredibly positive, there's something really, really life-affirming about that. But obviously there's something incredibly terrifying about that as well. I guess we're talking on a wider perspective, but the book itself is something that I've gone back to quite a lot over the time um, that I first read it, which I think was quite late, really. It was about 2012, 2013. But, you know, in relation to my own work, especially recently with my current work, I've been trying to think more along the lines of how I can adopt a methodology of working that relates, in a sense, to this vulnerable or fragmentary form of perception and something that's kind of open to collapse at any point. And that's what he kind of highlights in this book. He kind of talks about, I mentioned earlier about the idea of the mass media landscape, and he kind of talks about the space that we travel in our daily lives being littered with images and sound bites and sensations and all these types of things. But the logic that unites this stream of information is really just brokered by our own internal selves and so it's kind of regulated by our inward eye and so he was you know he's interesting because on one hand he was seen as a science fiction writer but then actually he was more interested in the space inwards 
the internal space, the kind of the subjective realm, if you like. And I think that that was partly to do with him growing up and witnessing the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and growing up in the prisoner of war camps and then the death of JFK in Vietnam. And all these kind of historical events were brokered through mass media imagery. And he was really the first one to kind of catalogue that. And so, you know, as an image maker, as a painter, that someone that deals in images that's grown up in this as a, as a child of, of this time, it's like he's incredibly important to me. Okay, yeah. so we'll get to the imagery and the collaging of imagery in a minute. But first, I thought it might be really helpful at the outset if you could perhaps read a passage from the book because yeah. I think it's quite hard to relate to just how fragmented it is. It's not a story that, you know, starts, has a middle and an ending. It really is a collage piece. You know, it's it has all these paragraph titles within the chapters and they work like subtitles or sort of film stills. And you get a real sense, which we can, I suppose, in one way, quite easily connect to your work. But it, it's more than just the collaging. But perhaps you could read a piece for us. I did find something earlier that I kind of wanted to read. So I'm going to read that. But maybe later we could open the book at random and then, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so this part is from a chapter called Tolerances of the Human Face, I believe. And the subtitle is Death Games v Vietnam. Dr. Nathan gestured at the war newsreels transmitted from the television set. Catherine Austin watched from the radiator panel, arms folded across her breasts. Any great human tragedy, Vietnam, let us say, can be considered experimentally as a larger model of mental crisis, mimetized in, a fu- in faulty stair angles or skin junctions, breakdowns in the perception of environment and consciousness. In terms of television and the news magazines, the war in Vietnam has a latent significance very different from its manifest content. Far from repelling us, it appeals to us by virtue of its complex of polyperverse acts. We must bear in mind, however sadly, that psychopathology is no longer the exclusive preserve of the degenerate and the perverse. The Congo, Vietnam, Biafra, these are games that anyone can play. Their violence, and all violence for that matter, reflects the neutral exploration of sensation that is taking place now, with insects as elsewhere, and the sense that the perversions are valuable precisely because they provide a readily accessible anthology of exploratory techniques. Where all this leads, one can only speculate. So that's just a small part of a larger chapter. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one in as well. Zero approached the forlorn group sitting on the embankment. His shadows formed bizarre patterns on the concrete, transcripts of cryptic formulae and insoluble dreams. These ideograms, like hieroglyphics of a race of blind seers, remained on the grey concrete after Zero had gone the detritus of this terrifying psychic totem, which I I chose that one because I love this idea of the persistence of memory and as well the idea of memory being situated in objects and in places in the furniture and the other places where memory can exist, for instance, in our DNA yeah. If, if you believe in ancestral memory, which I do. So why did you choose your piece? I li- Firstly, I liked what you're saying about the memory 
that that's interesting. We'll, maybe we'll get onto that. The reason why I chose that piece specifically is because the way in which images of atrocity are disseminated through us throughout our technological lives has a very peculiar effect on our psychologies and our own internal senses of morality. And this is what Ballard really gets to. He is enabling us to think that when we flip for a newspaper, for example, we are dealing with images of profound horror against an advert for a, a beauty product. Absolutely. And that's, that's incredibly odd. Absolutely. And it, that was something, I suppose, originally, well, maybe not originally, but very much picked up by Andy Warhol in his Orange Car Crash 14 times, which he depicted in 1963. So this was the same treatment as the Jackie Kennedy and Marilyn Monroe images of continual repetition of horror, 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 until it's meaningless until yeah. it's just a two-dimensional image and it has yeah. no substance to it. And I thought between those sort of images that I would associate with a book or in reading the book, I'd immediately come to Andy Warhol's images. And, of course, Ballard did write Crash, you know, that came eventually. The ideas for Crash probably formulated in this book because so much of it was about the arrangement of dummies and people became dummies and dummies became people and body parts became mannequin parts, etc. And I suppose I'd like to move on to your work that I've most recently seen at Lychee One Gallery in I'm Not Being Funny, where you've also taken this collaging idea, which I know you had done a lot earlier than that exhibition, and used that in your paintings where you have part body parts collaged onto the canvas. And mm. it does make me wonder what was originally underneath that was it something that was more intact and have you overridden that in a way with these strange limbs and and feet for instance that work with the painting of course aesthetically but they're quite disturbing as well the collage methodology was never really used as a way to disturb what was underneath there was nothing really underneath those images everything existed on the same kind of plane but mm -hmm. it was just moved around on a different axis if you understand yeah so there was nothing necessarily underneath that and that was the joy in many ways of being able to make those images was the sense that I was able to kind of move the components of the whole image around like one might move a jigsaw around except with a jigsaw, there is actually only one way it can ever go. For those paintings, there were infinite ways it could, it could go. And so they had many variations. And it was only really until the final moment, and what I mean by the final moment, the final moment was when I was pasting them, when I was gluing them. That was when I really committed to the image then by gluing it, because the gluing would take days. So through the potential reordering of it and me fixing myself, well, fixing the image by gluing it, that was as if I'd arranged it in a way in which it kind of made some kind of sense outside of my intention, if you like. So it sounds, when you talk, it sounds almost like staging the image. Yeah, I, I think that I do that a lot. 
I think that a lot of the images or the way that I resolve the images that I'm drawn to are really about staging. You know, I think that a lot of my images, the best ones are kind of really histrionic. They're kind of in a way over the top. And, and that's because I see them as almost like stage sets. I see the, the construction of, of an image being simply like me organising a, a stage set in a sense. Well, certainly in the painting, I think it's called Untitled and in brackets HSBC, but I think of it as the HSBC painting, where you have a a floor which is falling away and you have, I'm going to just call it a character in a box. And the character in the box, it's sort of like a magic trick, like a stage show, or is it the puppet in the box? Or like Punch and Judy or something. There There is definitely that, yeah. Is it a rope around the neck in that? Yeah, yeah. The rope around the neck is also in another painting of yours, which was at Tintype Gallery. Beside the boot, the truncheon rests. And that's another image which I, it, because I'm looking at this work through the lens of the book, I'm thinking of the mention of James Dean and the fact that he had this hangman's noose in his house that he would pose with for photographers, which is so macabre. <laughs> it's not funny. I didn't, I didn't pick up on that reference. That's a really good... Um, it's just coincidence. Well, I mean, who who believes in coincidence? That's something that... That's what this book is about, up to a certain extent, that perhaps there aren't actually things as coincidences, that there's a logic, like an unknown logic that underpins things. The HSBC painting specifically was made just very simply from a drawing. And the drawing that I'd made was from a George Grosch drawing of a figure in a room that was kind of hanging from a, a wardrobe. And as we know, George Grosch was kind of charted the 1920s in Berlin, a time of great economic depression. And I, you know, and I, I that was simply a reworking of that George Grosch drawing. And that was the first collage painting that I'd made where I felt like this has potential for more images whereas before I'd kind of used collage in a way to resolve an image I went into that painting kind of thinking that I was going to construct it through the language of collage and that was partly because I think I actually couldn't think of a way where I could paint the figure inside that box and I, I knew that I needed to have a sense of ambiguity with it I didn't want it to look necessarily like it was within a wardrobe for instance so it, some, someone said oh it kind of looks like a fridge and I was like well that's fine with my images my the paintings that I make I hope that there is a sense of ambiguity with everyone and that's kind of what I look for within the studio as a litmus test almost kind of feeling like whether it can pass my own test you know the test of whether it can leave the studio like does this Im- image retain a sense of ambiguity can it double up as something else and that's kind of what interests me a lot about imagery in a sense but also if we think about polka or if we actually think about um, picabia and the transparencies and the way that images double up and have the potential to suggest different things in different forms well actually speaking of sigma polk i wondered if in car that was his car I had seen that painting, but no, not necessarily. No, that was really from a very specific experience I had of, I I don't drive myself, but my partner does. And so she drives me around 
and then we you know we kind of have car journeys where I'm not really able to say anything because she's driving but I you know (laughs) and so anyway I was being driven by her into LA and I remember feeling as if there was this kind of overwhelming vista if you like of all these cars that were on the horizon line and they were like I don't know five or six lanes either side the the motorways were tiered it's just insane like I'd never anyone that's driven into LA like will will know exactly what I'm talking about it's just insane and then I was like oh okay so this is what the last the end of the last centuries have been about it's been about oil of course you know that's what people say but I didn't really click until I saw how many cars there were at this moment in time and I was like oh my god and then the oil's running out there's oil under the ice caps the oil companies want them to melt this is what we face so I just felt like I wanted to put a car into a painting from that point on. Like the shape of it, the reason why, I I think I probably do this quite a lot. I sugarcoat a lot of the imagery that I deal with. I think partly because I'm kind of interested in like making things look sweeter, but also partly because I think they are easier shapes to make as physical gestures as well. So that car became like a dinky car, if you like. There was originally a figure that was holding the car, like an Atlas figure. But I felt as if maybe that was too, I don't know, I just, it didn't really work for some reason. So I I started const- started constructing shapes. I thought it was going to be a house. And then I realized that the A looked like an A of a car. And then the car became like a sigh. And then it became like concrete poetry or something mm. along those lines. And mm. so it had this whole other set of associations that kind of unfolded out of my original intention. It definitely looks as if the car has one dominance over our lives because it's over the tree and over the house. Yeah. I wanted to ask you as well about the sculptures in that exhibition, quite specifically self-portrait as a chair. Um, well, the, the Van Gogh painting of the chair is kind of a self-portrait, isn't it? Obviously. Well, not obviously, but like that's like, I don't know, maybe that's kind of A-level art history or something. I, I don't know. I sort of felt like a chair is quite sad and quite lonely. And, you know, and I think that the idea of a self-portrait is often quite a sad and lonely thing to do. But it's... then, you know, there was obviously humour with it, with the nose. If I've got a show that I'm working towards, I'll, what I try to do is get the paintings or the images for the walls done as quickly as possible. Well, not as quickly as possible, but I try and get them done. And it gives me like a little time to play around with sculpture. And I, I kind of, I like that. I, I like making objects as a sort of, as a secondary thing. There is something about that chair that's quite different, though, to the other sculptures I felt in, in that show. Because the chair feels like, well, in a way, it partly feels more connected to this book than the other sculptures. But it also feels like it has so many meanings to it. As you say, it's a support structure. We sit on a chair. It has this Pinocchio nose, penis, and it's also black and red, which there's something about humour and support. And I actually thought rage, outrage, almost murderous rage um, in in that red and black. 
they're two extremely powerful colours to put together. And in a way, it seemed to be the piece that explained where the, all the paintings had come from, if you like. That's interesting. It summed up aspects of all, all the work in the room. I, I thought it worked really well in that exhibition. That's really interesting. Though I almost wanted it to be sitting right in the middle of the room. Yeah, I think we tried that with the, when we were doing the hang. I think we tried that, but for some reason it, it didn't work. Maybe it was because it, it wasn't really very good to be seen from all sides or something. But going back to what you were saying about the colours, that's those that specific red and black the association with Nazi Germany to me is kind of red and black and, and and actually fascism as well but at the same time red and black is also kind of an incredibly seductive color scenario I think you get that on the bottom of you know a Christian Louboutin shoe right that's like super kind of seductive how, so, do, you, how do you know that I just know that you know <laughs> that's just that's just stuff I know but like that, yeah, that's like red and black is kind of a colour combination that really incites the senses, I think. My first big journey, if you like, was to America and therefore I did drive into LA. It was, I've never seen it, experienced anything like it uh, in terms of a real slap in the face statement of where things are at with car consumption and oil consumption. And... Part of, part of that trip was also going to New York and there was a an Australian actor who, who was in a show there, uh, Anthony the Parlier, and I can't even remember the show. I think it was On the Waterfront or something like that. And uh, every everybody wore black. It was black, black, black everywhere. And coincidentally, I'm from Melbourne in Australia and everybody wears black. Anyway, so I went to the theatre And I discovered firsthand that you didn't have to just wear black, that you could actually wear black and red. But I think you had to be a theatre goer. So anyway, it is that seductive, this is what the fancy people were wearing in New York, black and red. Red was allowed. You see, you see what I mean then, that, that colour combination, that there is something about that colour combination that isn't just about fascism. And that's why the kind of fascist insignia in a sense is so dangerous you could argue that it appeals to it appeals to the passions that to me that's interesting the idea that something so profoundly obviously profoundly wrong and backwards and degenerative potentially on kind of some some kind of archetypal level can appeal to the the deep deep senses i think that that that's what ballard understood going back to him I really do. I think that he really understood that, that there are these primal motivations that lie in our internal selves. And, you know, and, and I think that what we're seeing now is that they're, they're coming more to the surface and that, well, we're seeing the world change, obviously, but we're seeing the world, we're seeing people become less, less shy about that, I think, perhaps. I don't, I don't know. But that brings me actually back to the book and the ideas around reality and fiction. So in the introduction, it states, Today, when the fictional elements have overwhelmed reality, the main task of the arts seems to be more and more to isolate the real elements in this goulash of fictions from the unreal ones. 
And also there's the fact that J.G. Ballard himself added annotations to the book 20 years after its initial publication. And I was thinking about that. I'd written a piece for something else recently, which was talking about ideas of the truth that seemed to be very much around in post-war art, especially in America, this sort of triumphant truth. Truth will triumph in the end. Uh, truth of materials. And I don't think that's panned out, really. Yeah. In fact, amongst all those subheadings that he's got, love among the mannequins, some bloody accident, veteran of the private evacuations, tolerances of the human face in crash impacts, Madonna of the multi-story car park. I mean, they're brilliant. One of them is fake newsreels. And this idea of fake, yeah. fake news. Oh, you know, didn't that just get invented a couple of years ago? And of course, it's always been around. But I think the difference that comes through that text is Ballard's, well, this is what I took from it, is Ballard's yearning for art to expose truth. Have we given up now? I think we've given up now on that. Have we? Well, it depends how you want to think about it, I guess. But one of the great things that he makes me think about is kind of what I was sort of trying to hint at earlier, which is this kind of idea of the inward life and that how that is not separated from the outward world. In fact, that that's actually kind of fully connected to the outward world is the inward self. And, and so he describes that idea, I think, as the reality hidden beyond outward appearances. And that, you know, and that's a quote. And I think that that's to say something along the lines of how there is something just as tangible beneath the appearance of the everyday. I think that that's what the idea, I hate that term, fake news, but I think that if you think about it hard enough, that's what that term actually promotes, is that the idea that there's actually something beneath the everyday. In a backwards way, it's actually kind of potentially kind of like an inspiring, useful term, because it means that maybe that this true form beneath the lie, <laughs> beneath the sludge, you know, there's, there's a reality beneath the sludge. And I think that when, you know, when we're looking at the, again, the mass media landscape, if you like, we're now in our contemporary condition, we know that we can't go there for truth. That is a given now. And that's, I mean, that's absolutely terrifying. So what, what Ballard predicted, I think, in a way was that those components, those body parts, if you like, in the crash test dummies and the, you know, the mannequins, these are the people that are standing on stage and talking to us. These are body parts these are components. These aren't real people. These aren't real sentiments. These are just collage components that are being manipulated in a sense by their own kind of desires and their own vanity and their own sense of self-preservation. So it's kind of kind of post-Machiavellian, if you like, isn't it? So if we, if we think about the idea of fake news, again, I, I have to say that I really, really hate that term. But if we think about it, applying to the idea that there's actually a it's something that exists beneath beneath the lie that is something to hang on to. And maybe that's a good thing, you know. And that's not me for one moment saying that I promote that man. We, we shouldn't even mention his name. No way. <laughs> not on my podcast. <laughs> um, okay, that's a really interesting way to 
think about it. And when you were talking, I was thinking of two things. One is really more your work that was in Ground Figure Sky at Tintype Gallery. So that was after you'd done the residency in Rome. And I was talking to you at some point around that exhibition of the surface of the work. And it very much fitted with the story of those paintings, which they felt like this was all whitewashing, these beautiful built-up surfaces that were like chalk. And they have an appearance of watery pigments and that you've brushed them on quite quickly and so they're sketchy like a children's book but a lot of the images of course with the black boots and the hammer and the scythe are really disturbing so there is another truth underneath those images and in a way they're quite different to the ones that were at lychee one do you want to talk a bit about that residency and how that affected your work and the shift that you made after that exhibition. Yeah, of course. I think those are some really interesting points. Um, uh, I don't know where to begin. When you're talking about the scythe, I think that I've been kind of interested in this, this idea of the pastoral, you know, and the idea of kind of being outside and working the land. And the idea of kind of toiling on the land is a an idea that is full of contradiction in my mind. The idea of kind of rustic life is kind of a dream that's kind of sold with some good intentions perhaps, but yet at the same time the reality for many people has always been that life on the land is incredibly tough and brutal. That's something that exists in the background to my work generally, not necessarily specifically those paintings as such, but generally. Those were made in Rome, and I, I originally went to Rome. Initially, the project was to go there and to research emblem books, which were like an early form of tabloid journalism, like the free papers that you get on transport networks. And I was kind of interested in those because I saw parallels between those images and the way in which, just naturally, I, the way that I felt drawn to certain types of centralised motifs of a figure in a centralised space, and that sometimes these images have text in, they kind of often have like a moral impetus. They were kind of given away by the church, for instance. And so, I was, you know, I, there, there are similarities between the tabloids and, and the, the free papers, I mean, and these kind of emblem books. So there's definitely overlaps. So I kind of, I wanted to go there and think about a way in which I could kind of synthesise those types of ideas. And I think that it wasn't actually really until the Lightyear One show that those ideas actually really came together. So that's probably the transition you're talking about, the the journey between the, or the development between those two works. That certain paintings, the Youth Serum painting, for instance, felt like it was a reworking of a, an advert in a newspaper for like face cream, you know, but with, with, an, with a hypodermic syringe hanging from someone's face like Botox, you know. You were also talking before about this false news being about the internal truth behind the surface. So this goes some way to explain what it was like to read the book for me. And 
I can't remember which billboards this is in reference to, but you know how billboards are continually repeated throughout the book where there'll be a massive billboard in the background of whatever's happening, normally with somebody like Elizabeth Taylor. And it's a bit like those massive billboards that appear through Blade Runner or Minority Report, the persistence of advertising being part of our visual aesthetic. Anyway, so this is the author's note. Giant billboards. 20 years after writing this, I arrived in Los Angeles for the first time on my way to a movie. Driving down Santa Monica Boulevard, I was struck by the total familiarity of the urban landscape, accurately presented in thousands of films and TV episodes. Then, to my amazement, I looked up at the first anomaly, a huge billboard that carried my own name, The irony of being trapped inside the media maze I had described in the atrocity exhibition wasn't lost on me. I mean, imagine that. You're driving around in your car and there's your name on a billboard. I mean, it was on a billboard with lots of other people, but that's what it was like reading this book. You're trapped in this sort of madness of the revisiting again and again and again of the death of... I don't know why I've forgotten her name. The death of uh, her, na- her surname starts with N, Karen Novotny. So I thought what you were saying before about this false news or fake news or whatever, I felt is in that author's note and it is in those advertising billboards and the persistence of advertising as part of our use of the internet where it becomes so overwhelming. Like when we get this news of everything that's wrong with the world, it's so overwhelming, it's really distressing. We're now talking about how we're going to manage the end of humanity and the current generation being an extremely anxious generation is no surprise. It brings me to the podcast that you put me onto, which is Weird Studies, and that homing in on sort of areas of research and being pursuant to not so much the truth, let's say, because it's too much of an overused word and it loses its meaning, but possibilities of new ways to think about things. I don't know where I was going with that. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. Uh, you mentioned something that made my ears prick up, something that you read about people entering the discussion about how they're going to manage the end of humanity. What what, what, do you, what, what was that? What is that? that you read? Uh, there's a podcast I listen to, which is a philosophy podcast, and this one in particular was about the language that we might use for the destruction of the environment, for instance, which, of course, will lead to the demise of our existence. So this podcast explores different terminologies. Should we call it war? Is there a war on the environment? You know, is that helpful? In fact, Ballard says something about that. He says, you know, thank goodness the organic world got a foothold in the development of the species before the non-organic did. What we're seeing now is the development of the species being fused with the inorganic. And that's, that's what like a lot of this brain research is about, like the interface between the human brain and kind of digital connectivity. And, you know, that's like fascinating, but also comes up with its own set of incredibly dangerous assumptions and kind of potentials for human consciousness and human behavior and 
absolutely. And there's a book, I can't remember the name of the book, but it's about how human beings over time, over centuries, have developed in direct response to the landscape. And now that we are participating in this digital landscape, it obviously makes sense that that's the way we then develop. I'd like to go back now to the book and some of the devices that Ballard uses. And one of them is definitely of repetition. And I talked about that a bit earlier with regards to Andy Warhol and images of Marilyn Monroe and Jackie Kennedy, where he repeats to the point where 3D reality is lost through this continual repetition. And I don't know what you make of this. There's also an astonishing, astonishing number of repeats of the word breasts. I've highlighted some. Concealed breasts, black breasts, eroded breasts, breasts and buttocks, May West's breasts, patient's breasts, an unlit bonfire of breasts. I could go on. I read out earlier had a breast in or maybe a pair. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So there's all this repetition of Marilyn Monroe, Elizabeth Taylor, of Jackie Kennedy... And he's using all these motifs throughout. So I wanted to come to your motifs throughout your work and the child. So your children are, I mean, I know they're children. They seem a little bit more like youth. Sometimes it's a little fascist. Sometimes it's innocent. Sometimes it's damaged. Do you want to talk about children in your work? Yeah, of course. I don't see them as children. You're right. I see them as youths. And originally, I think I did used to see them as children. That obviously naturally kind of developed. And I started to think about the youth being such a kind of malleable force, which is, of course, what the painting surface is itself. And so the the youth is kind of like the armature, if you like, the architecture that one can hang their ideas from. And it just so happens that my ideas are often at odds with what you might associate a youth to be. And, And so for that reason, there's kind of a sense of discord or unease, potentially, with some of the works. And... That, for me, is where the work exists, or the ideas of the work exists. Going back to Ballard and the idea of the repetition of the motif, if you like, of the breast, what we haven't spoken about is the fact that Ballard's wife died in the early 60s. And after he kind of evolved out of writing what was strictly seen as science fiction, he entered a new phase that felt very much if you were to observe it through an autobiographical lens, which is sometimes problematic. But if you were to do that, you are potentially able to understand that what he was doing with the repetition of these motifs is actually maybe to try and resurrect the image of his wife somehow from these broken narratives. That's how it feels like to me, that the, the images of his wife like are kind of flickering like a carousel or like a slide projector or something throughout the pages of books in that era certainly crash and certainly the atrocity exhibition going back to me about the the motif of this youth it's it's kind of different but i like the idea that over the course of a lifetime a motif will kind of feature and with that motif you you're able to use that as a as i say as a scaffold for you to hang your ideas from 
Absolutely. In fact, very early on in the book where the main character is Travis, he talks about where the neighbour is a woman and she's dying of cancer. And so over time, her body starts decaying. He can see her through the lace curtains and the doctor comes more and more frequently. I can't remember how he describes her breasts, but her body becomes all blackened with her pending death. And she does die eventually, and he he follows the uh, funeral procession. I thought that was a moment of the author then shifting away from the sort of narrative that takes up a lot of the rest of the book to something, a little glimpse of something a bit more personal and, you know, truly very sad, very moving. And I can see what you mean. Then your child or youth, if you like, can maintain all sorts of personalities so in, in 1990, he also added four segments to the book, which were about Princess Margaret's facelift, Queen Elizabeth's nose job and Mae West's breast reduction, as well as the secret of World War Three or something or other. For me, this is your youth serum painting, which is so dramatic and impactful. And actually, strangely, I find it really, really beautiful. But of course, it's very disturbed. And it's that, you know, the picture of Dorian Gray idea about it. And also, I wanted to come to your two wax figures I know of. I mean, there might be more, but certainly the Aubrey de Grey piece, uh, The Coming Millennia of Body and Soul, which I felt it was like, you know, in myths where one character morphs into another character. Right. I almost felt like your fairy tale of virtue from 2012 had morphed somehow into Aubrey de Grey. You know, this okay. this promise of eternal life. Yeah. In the same way that Princess Margaret has this facelift so she can look young forever. So I'd like to know, does the Aubrey de Grey wax figure still exist or is it a melted down puddle? I, I have the mould, so it still exists. So how do they work? Because they're quite different to the collage pieces and to your other earlier sculptures and to your recent sculptures at Light You One. Um, well, I really liked what you were saying earlier about um, when you were talking about that podcast you were listening to about the end of the world and you were saying something about, you, you know, in preparation for this. I mean, what, what what is going to happen, I believe, is that the world is going to become very difficult to live in and that there will be ways in which the human species learns to adapt to that. So I don't think that the human race is going to be extinguished fully, but I think that it's going to be extinguished along economic lines. So now this is one of the major motivations behind that piece, the Aubrey de Grey piece, was that Aubrey de Grey is a researcher, a life scientist that believes that ageing is a disease and should be treated like any other disease. That's surely not it. No, it's not. Grant and I gossiped on about Francis Picabia, the yellow wallpaper, and the strange way that an artist's practice circles and reconnects with itself. So I've split this podcast into parts one and two. Please be sure to subscribe or follow me so you don't miss out on how the story ends. In the meantime, thank you to Grant Foster and to all the artists who have inspired me to create this podcast in the first place. And thank you for listening to Art Fictions with me, 
Gillian Knight. You're welcome to get in touch with me directly via my Instagram, which is artfictions2020, or my website, gilliannipe.co.uk. Across these, you'll also find images of the artist's work, as well as any relevant links we mentioned today. The Art Fictions illustration is created by Joanna Quinn, and the music is thanks to Griffin Knipe. As always, happy reading and hopefully some art viewing before the next episode. <laughs>